lead the Sunday school, and my understanding was, so if I'm wrong, it's too late to correct today, but uh, that Reverend Godfrey was going through the canons of Dort before uh, COVID hit. So the last thing online was from May, I'm sorry, March 8th, 2020. So hopefully you remember exactly where he's at because I'm picking up there. No, I want to go back and reintroduce what are the canons of Dort. So today, kind of a little history and introduction. And then next week, uh, Mike Horton's actually going to be teaching Sunday school class. It's Reformation Sunday. So he's going to be doing something specifically on the Reformation. And then William Godfrey and I are going to go back and forth. And I think Drew Admiral's going to uh, teach with us um, in terms of going through the canons of Dort. We're going to pick up on head three and four, which we'll get into in a minute. But today, I thought just by way of refresher for myself as well, in terms of what's the history of the Canons of Dort, where does it come from, what are they, and all those things. But if you wouldn't mind turning in your Bibles to Revelation chapter seven. Really, we could say the theme of scripture is really that salvation belongs to the Lord. And one of the things we want to recognize is that from beginning to end, that salvation is a gift by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, according to the word of God alone. And we want to recognize, the canons of Dort in particular, want to recognize that salvation belongs to the Lord. Uh, We are the recipients of grace. We're not participants uh, or cooperators with it, or there's no meriting or anything. It's just a gift from the Father in the Son through the Holy Spirit. And let's listen to Revelation chapter 7. We'll start with this, and then we're going to end the day looking at Ephesians. Revelation 7, starting in verse 9. Just listen to the nature of how our, our, our salvation is described. This is at the end. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude. So these are all the people invited to the feast that we heard about uh, in the sermon today. That no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes, and from all the peoples. Languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped him, saying, Amen. And then there are seven blessings here, the fullness, right? A blessing and glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Just highlighting that salvation belongs to the Lord. And at the last day, when we are gathered together with all the saints who have gone uh, before us, we will just be singing and praising God for the salvation that he has given us. We won't be saying, look at what I've done, or look at how I cooperated. We'll just be praising God for the salvation that he has given to us and all of those blessings. And the canons of Dort really wanted to address some of those uh, things. Um, The history of understanding the canons of Dort helps us understand why we have them in the first place. And the canons of Dort is one of the three forms of unity that we have in the United Reformed Churches. So the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgian Confession, and the canons of Dort make the three forms of unity. And these are what we unite around, right? We agree um, with our brothers and sisters on these uh, doctrines or these teachings that are, that are there. And today I wanted to go through a little bit of history 
Just so you know, I'm relying heavily on Philip Schaff, who wrote um, a history of this, William Godfrey, Scott Clark, and history books that I had in seminary. I, didn't, I don't know history just by osmosis. I didn't come up with this. I won't be mentioning them. It's a collection of uh, history books going through this together. But the United Reformed Churches were a family of churches. We all mark our lineage from the Protestant Reformation, Many nationalities kind of flowing into that tributary, Swiss, German, Dutch, English, Scottish, Welsh. Uh, Many of them became Presbyterian a little bit later. But sometimes people think of the Reformed faith as the five points of Calvinism. And we want to say the Reformed understanding of things is broader than that. The five points of Calvinism, which are kind of addressed in the Canons of Dort, really have to do with salvation in particular. But there's a much broader perspective on what it means to be Reformed. And the Belgic Confession, for instance, goes through all of those. So not only what we believe about salvation, but what do we believe about creation? What do we believe about the church? What do we believe about the sacraments? What do we believe about the end time? So a, a much broader perspective. But this is a really specific and focused look at what do we confess, what do we believe regarding salvation. And also sometimes you've heard of the Arminian and Calvinist wars uh, and people are arguing different things based on verses. There aren't Calvinist verses and Arminian verses, there are verses and we're responsible for all of them. We don't get to say these are in one camp and prove one point and these are in another camp and prove all the points. We have to address all the verses that seem to um, point to our view or seem to not to. We have to be able to think thoughtfully and holistically about all of them. And there's a great deal on the line because there's been decades of confusion regarding the heart of the Reformation and what was it all about. And so now I'm just going to go through a little bit of history and then we'll get into the details. But in the 1500s, there was a new church and a new community were emerging at the same time. The Netherlands are kind of the low country. It was uh, where uh, one of the wealthiest countries in Europe They were very hardworking people. They were disciplined, relatively prosperous, farmers, manufacturers, and commerce. It had 17 different provinces from different ethnic identities, histories, cultures, and languages. The South was primarily French, and the North was primarily Dutch, and then the uttermost northern part was Frisian. And eventually, they all came under the rule of King Charles V of Spain in 1550. And that was really the high point of what you may have heard of as the Habsburg uh, rule. Spain, Germany, Austria, part of Italy, and the Netherlands are now all together. And King Charles was Catholic, and he was frustrated by the Reformation. He didn't like it at all. He wasn't sympathetic to it. He actively persecuted the Reformed churches, which is part of uh, the Belgic Confession, if you remember, was in response to some of that. Eventually, he was forced to sign a treaty with Lutheran princes, uh, having some peace, and he abdicated the throne because he did not want to live in a world where Protestantism flourished, right? (laughs) That's pretty, you're the king, and you're like, I don't want to rule in a world where Protestantism flourishes. This is, I'm taking my ball and going home on steroids, isn't it? So... Charles V was actually succeeded by Philip II, who became king of Spain. And there was what was called the Eighty Years' War between the Netherlands and Spain, which led to a division in the Netherlands. In the south was Philip and Spain, and they were able to hold on to the south, which became known as Belgium. They were French speakers. The Reformation was really going well there in France uh, and in Switzerland. And the north was... um, 
where William of Orange emerged as the leader of the Netherlands. And William of Orange was a convert to the Reformed faith. He was very sympathetic to it. And things were so difficult in the north that they couldn't even get someone to be their king. <laughs> they had lost a lot of money in the war. And they were like, offering, will you please come and rule us? Will you please come? And nobody would do it. Even Queen Elizabeth, right? Uh, she wouldn't do it. Like nobody wanted to rule over this. So while King Charles was running away from his throne because he didn't want Protestants, nobody could get anybody to rule uh, in the north. Kind of a funny time. It ended up being a republic by default until after the Napoleonic Wars. The Dutch royal family today, you know, is called the House of Orange, right? Coming from William of Orange back in the late 1500s as well. Many moved from the south to the north because of those difficult times, leaving family, wealth, and community. So when we sing in one of our songs, right, let good and kindreds go, this mortal life also, some of our forefathers and mothers in the faith really did. In order to be able to go to and worship in a true church, in order to be able to avoid persecution for what they believed, they left goods, they left kindred, they left what they knew and what they were familiar with. They were very hardy in these things and very encouraging for us in order to be able to emulate them. Dr. Godfrey reports that William of Orange actually made an offer at one time that he would either provide a university to the people or no taxes. This is your choice. Do you want a university or do you want to avoid paying taxes? And Dutch Calvinists were like Calvinists in general. They were committed to education. And so they said, we want a university. You know it's a legend because no Dutchman would give up having to not pay taxes, right? Um, but uh, <laughs> that, was, uh, that was what was said. And so they picked a university and that's where the University of Leiden came from. And the University of Leiden is going to play into our picture here. All of this has a reason. So he said, he gave the people a choice. You don't have to pay taxes or we're going to have a university and they picked a university and the University of Leiden was born and it was founded really to teach the truths of the Reformation and to teach Calvinism in particular. And the church reached a level of stability and influence but also began to hear some dissident voices. And that's where this starts to come into play. One of the professors at the University of Leiden, his name is Jacob Arminius, or James Arminius. You've heard of Arminians today, Arminians and Calvinists. Jacob, Ar 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 Jacob is his Dutch name, James Arminius. He was from 1559 to 1609. And he uh, was born in Holland. Uh, he studied under Beza in Geneva. And he was one of the first to graduate from the University of Leiden. He was married to the daughter of a very wealthy uh, Dutch merchant, and then he was elected minister of Amsterdam. And early on, questions were raised about his teaching in general, and then election in particular, but no formal charges were brought against him, particularly how he addressed Romans 7 and how he addressed Romans 9 regarding election and predestin predestination. But he was elected as a professor of theology in La at Leiden in 1603. And so Jacob Arminius was starting to teach things that were contrary to the Belgic Confession and Heidelberg Catechism, which had already been written and were already part of the practice and life of Reformed churches uh, in the area. And he wrote a long response to William Perkins. William Perkins was a British Calvinist, a Puritan, who had written on predestination, and Jacob Arminius wrote a response to him. And Dr. Godfrey describes it as a very sly response because he did not say that Perkins or Calvinists were wrong. 
He just said he wasn't convinced that they were right, which is okay in like normal conversation, but if you're paid to be teaching <laughs> Calvinism or Reformed theology at a university, it's not, well, he may be wrong, he may be right. You want something? No, this is what we teach and this is what we believe and why. So he is very sly about it or smart about it, however you want to, to look at it. <clears throat> and um, he started to teach things that were a little bit different. And Dr. Godfrey in his class on church history also wanted to ask a pretty provocative question. He said, was Jacob Arminius an Arminian? And by that, he means that the followers of Jacob Arminius took his original thoughts to a place that Jacob Arminius probably would never land up. Land, Much like other people take the teachings of somebody and end up in places. Many people professing to be Calvinists today do things or say things that John Calvin never would have said. So the same thing with Jacob Arminius, that he kind of had some questions and doubts about things, but some of his followers took things to a place that Jacob Arminius would not. And so Jacob Arminius acknowledged that humankind was dead in sin, which we would agree with. We even read that in Ephesians today, right? We are dead in our trespasses and sins, not just weak or hurting or ailing, we're dead. And so he would agree with that. He also acknowledged that it was by God's grace alone that one is brought to a new life. We can agree with that. We wanna, but how he understands that grace and what that grace is doing is a little bit different, but he would say that we are saved by grace alone. And then the water started to get a little bit muddy with Jacob's teaching when he said that you become a believer by grace, and you, but you stay in by obedience. Right? What's the problem with that? What's that? Yeah. So it's in essence saying you get in by grace, but you stay in by faithfulness or by cooperation. And we believe right from the very beginning to the end, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, right? Salvation belongs to the Lord. And even as we read in Ephesians this morning in our gospel passage, we were created in Christ for good works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So do Reformed folks believe that we need to do good works? Absolutely. They're evidence and fruit of our salvation. They are not the basis or foundation upon which our salvation or sanctification reside. They're manifesting that we are united to the true vine. They are part and parcel of being saved. That we are created for good works, which God prepares beforehand that we should walk in them. So the waters begin to get a little bit muddy there when he says you're in by grace, but you stay in by faithfulness. And then he also muttered, muddied the waters when he said God elects believers to be saved. What would be a challenge with that? Mm -hmm. Yep, yeah, and you, that's right. Anything else? What's that? Exactly. So she said, we can't believe because we're dead. God's, God elects sinners to be saved. Yes, that's exactly right. So he would say that God elects believers to be saved. Sure, all believers were elect to be saved, but God elects sinners to be saved. God elects those who are dead in their trespasses and sins and makes them alive. That passage that we read in Ephesians even says that by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, meaning even the faith to believe is a gift. That's radical. Faith isn't the one thing that you conjure up on your own in order to be saved. 
it is part and parcel of what God gives you when he calls you from death to life. A great image of salvation, of course, is a Jesus standing at the tomb of Lazarus. He didn't say, you know, hey, take the red pill and you'll be fine. Or he said, come forth, Lazarus. His, his word was effectual, raising him from the dead. He didn't offer him an alternative, come or don't come. Maybe you want to, if it's not, you're not too busy. If the Dodgers game isn't on, Brett, if the Red Wings aren't playing, come. Lazarus, come forth. And the word of Jesus was effectual. Spurgeon said, if he wouldn't have used the name of Lazarus, that everybody in the grave would have come, right? That's how effective it is. Lazarus, come forth. He calls the sheep and he calls them by name and they come. It's effectual unto salvation. So it's not just that God elects believers. God elects sinners to be saved. It's even our situation is worse in our sin and better in Christ than we even imagined. And then he became a proponent of universal grace. He modified the doctrine of original sin to mean that we are sinners by imitating Adam rather than Adam's sin being imputed to us. What's that distinction? What does that mean when we say that? Yeah, so Jacob Arminius thinks we're basically put back into the garden. That God gives grace, what he calls prevenient grace, to everyone. And then you're basically put back in the garden. And then you can choose or not choose in the same way that Adam and Eve did. Whereas scripture seems to say we are condemned by the one man's disobedience. We're all uh, unrighteous. Uh, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We weren't born neutral. We weren't born with the opportunity to take or not take. We were born condemned. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And we were running from God. We were running from everything holy and beautiful and good. We were hell-bent on going our own way. We were enemies of God. Exactly. That, yeah. that's, and that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says, right? We were enemies. Yeah, very good. And so... He started to teach these things, which then infiltrated, right? He's teaching them at the seminary level or the university level, and then that bleeds out into the churches. And they're starting to think, well, this doesn't quite match up with what we're saying in the Heidelberg Catechism or what the scripture says here. So it began to be an issue. So in 1610 to 1618, there was a tremendous tension over some of these issues. And so there's a group of people uh, that wrote something called a remonstrance, which means petition. And they were petitioning both uh, with the state, not the church. And it was signed by 46 Arminian ministers. And uh, they wrote their views down, which we're going to look at real briefly in a minute. But they, uh, it was called a remonstrance. It was a petition saying, we believe that these are the fair and faithful, accurate teaching. And the Calvinists coming up with a super clever name in response were the counter remonstrants, right? The marketing people spent overtime trying to figure that out. So the remonstrants wrote their views, and then there was a counter-remonstrance, right, Re uh, answering those questions. And so the Synod of Dort was called to meet. The Synod uh, is a gathering of all the churches. It was a national synod. It was convened uh, November 13th, 1618 through May 9th, 1619. For those of you who can do math well, that's seven months. Our last synod was two days. They're taking seven months to weigh through these and many other issues as well, but to weigh through these issues. 
There were 84 members, 58 Dutchmen, 26 foreign delegates. It was truly an international synod. 18 secular commissioners were sent. They had 154 formal sessions, as well as a number of conferences. And the sessions were public. Uh, these, were, these conversations were had in public with crowds and spectators. Two interesting and humorous anecdotes which Bob Godfrey shares is that there was a squabble between the British and the French about who would get the best seats, right? This from our parable this morning. At the last minute, the French decided not to come because they weren't sure they were going to get the best seats. And Louis XIV gave the delegates exit visas, but he wouldn't give them re-entrance visas. So kind of like some travel today in different countries. But you can leave, but we don't know for sure if you can come back. So none of the French uh, went to this. But one of my favorite stories is that a Dutch professor named Gomeris got so angry one time during a debate on the floor of Synod that he challenged another member to a duel. That's pretty heated. I don't think uh, in my 12 years now as a minister, we've had some issues at Synod, but nobody's yet challenged someone else to a duel. So I'm glad that we've moved beyond that, I hope. But uh, it was obviously tense. But the issues really had to do with these five articles. And the Canons of Dort, which is what came out of the Synod of Dort, was the Canons of Dort, were five points, uh, that teaching specifically about salvation. So Jacob Arminius and his uh, cohorts taught in conditional predestination. In other words, election and condemnation are conditioned by a foreknowledge and made dependent on the foreseen faith. So everybody has, every Christian who reads their Bible has to have some doctrine of predestination because the word is used over and over in Scripture. But what do we mean by predestination? And so the Arminians mean that it's conditioned based on the fact that God will look down the corridor of time and if he sees that you will choose him, then he elects you. So it's based on what's called foreseen faith. If he looks and he sees Chuck's going to choose him, Megan's going to choose him, then I elect Chuck and Megan. But if they don't, then I don't. How do we respond to that? Yeah, so the response to this is unconditional election. Right? There's nothing in us that makes God choose us. He chooses us of his own goodwill, of his own pleasure. We're all equally ruined and condemned in Adam. And those of us who are saved are equally saved in Christ. Nobody's more deserving or less deserving. It's not because of anything in us that God saw. It's because of something in God himself, where he chose to have mercy, where he chose to save, where he chose to call, he chose to regenerate. Everyone else, he's leaving in their sin and misery. He's not being unfair. He's being just. But he's being merciful and calling out a multitude that can't be counted from amongst those fallen in Adam, the ones that we read about in Revelation that are saying worthy is the lamb and praising him and glorifying him. So Jacob Arminius taught it's conditioned based on if you believe, then you'll be elect. We would say you believe because you're elect. It's flipped. Do you hear the difference? If you're elect, you will be saved. If you're elect, you will believe. If you're elect, you will be justified. If you're elect, you will be sanctified. If you're elect, you will be in glory. Because of who God is and because of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done and what the Holy Spirit is doing now, all glory to God, right? So the second point was 
universal atonement. So Jacob Arminius and Arminians believe that Jesus Christ died for all and every person in the same way and that God's grace can be resisted and the immediate effect of Christ's death was not salvific but savability, meaning that Jesus Christ died to make everybody savable. And if you go back to what they believed here, right? So Jesus Christ's death made everyone savable and then whether you're saved or not, is dependent upon whether you choose to believe in Jesus or you don't. And he saw that ahead of time and then picked you. So it's making salvation, without wanting to say it this crassly, right? It's making salvation completely based on you. I mean, they'd say, of course, God gave you the grace originally to make you able to make that choice. But the choice is up, up to you. And so God makes everybody savable. And we believe in that God actually saves. How many of Christ's sheep will hear his voice, beloved? How many of his children are going to be saved? How many of God's people are going to be with them in glory? Yeah, not one. The parable is even saying, go and fill it, right? Everyone's going to come. So we talk about this sometimes as limited atonement, and sometimes that phrase freaks people out or they're uncomfortable with it. You could talk about it in terms of particular redemption. It's not limited in terms of how effective Christ's saving work is. It's limited in terms of the application for it. It's limited to those for whom Jesus died. What would be an example of where Jesus even says, this isn't for everybody indiscriminately, it's for certain people. Where could we find that in scripture? Yeah, all of my sheep hear my voice and will come. Where, what else? Yeah, all, he says specifically in his high priestly prayer in John 17, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for all those whom have been given to me by my father, specifically. He says, I've come to give my life a ransom for many. So we would say, as Reformed folks, that Christ's death is um, sufficient for everybody, but it's efficient for the elect. It's certainly sufficient for everybody in the whole world because of who he is. He's the eternal son of God. And it's sufficient to be able to save everyone, but it's efficient, effective for those who are his, for those who are his children, those whom he gave his blood. There won't be anybody in hell for whom Jesus Christ did not pay, for whom Jesus Christ paid the penalty. All of his Everybody for whom Jesus Christ died will be with him for glory. Right. Well, he would, yeah. We would want to say it was, again, sufficient for everybody, but it's effective for the elect. He says, I give my life for my sheep. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Any questions about that? That's a sticky one. I grew up in an Armenian church, and when I first heard this, I threw a book across the room. <laughs> it was my Gordon's book. I was like, that can't be right. And now I believe that. Yes. Sure. Sure. 
And that's where I want to be clear, we don't have Arminian verses and Calvinistic verses, right? So we have to be responsible for John 3.16. And it says, For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him shall be saved. I agree that wholeheartedly. I want to ask, who are the whosoevers? And I would say the whosoevers are those whom God elected before the foundation of the world and for whom Jesus Christ died. And we don't know who they are, right? I don't see above your head a blinking neon sign that says E for elect or R for reprobate. And we preach the gospel promiscuously. And God uses that word. He's using it to harden those who aren't his and he's using that to call those who are his. It won't return void. So the whosoever, I believe wholeheartedly, everyone, I want to preach passionately, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Absolutely. And behind the scenes, we know everyone who is his is going to come. All of his sheep are going to hear his voice. All of them will respond. He will make sure the gospel gets to them. He will ensure that they respond to it. He will give them everything that they need for salvation. He's not just going to make it possible. He's going to save. And he's going to save to the uttermost. And that doesn't make us lax in our missionary zeal. It gives us the very impetus for it. We can go out in confidence and boldness and proclaim these things knowing this is the very means that God uses to build his kingdom and his church and to call his people. Is that helpful? Any other questions about that? It's a tough one. All right, next was saving faith. So Jacob thought there, there's a preparatory grace given to all making salvation possible and they need to cooperate with that grace um, to be saved. Basically, it's like we said before, it's just putting people back in the garden. And this is how salvation is often preached in an Arminian world, right? You are on your deathbed and... Jesus comes to you and says, all you have to do is take this medicine and you will be saved. And it's just up to you. And God's a gentleman and he's not going to violate your will or your choice or anything. It's just all you, all you have to do. I've done everything else. I've gone 99.9999999% All you have to do is take this and you will be saved. And we would say, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're not sick and in a hospital, and they just need a lifeline or a little help or need to come and take that one pill, you need to be saved. You need to be regenerated. You need to be reborn. And that you need to be given faith. Given the gift of faith, not just the opportunity for faith. If you don't take anything else away, just remember the difference between that. It's not just the opportunity of faith and take this pill. It's the gift of faith. Believe. The king says, believe, and you believe. The king says, come, and you come. Because you're his. You're his sheep. You hear his voice. You follow him. There's nothing to pat yourself on the back for for that. Much to praise the Lord for, and much to go out and share that good news. Because we're equally ruined, right? Does that make sense? Any questions about that? The next one was resistible grace. Arminians believe that you can reject God's grace. You can say, no, I'm not going to take that pill. And we would say it's irresistible grace. You're powerfully drawn and recreated. First Peter says we're born again by the living and abiding word of God. 
If it's resistible grace, right, it's really in essence making us more powerful than God, more powerful than his word, more powerful than salvation, more powerful than the Holy Spirit. I went to a Nazarene college for one year, and I remember having a conversation with uh, one of the theology professors there because I was reading Romans 8, and it said, right, there's nothing in all of creation that can separate you from the love of God, right? Not death, not powers, not principalities, like nothing, like this amazing list. And so I, I was really struggling with my faith, losing salvation, all kinds of things. And so I was talking to my professor at a Nazarene school, and he said, yeah, that's true, but you can jump. In other words, like, all, I, death, I'm more powerful than death, than all the powers, than all of these things. He said, yeah, but your will, right? They make your will the absolute thing, but you can choose to jump. And I'm like, ugh, that's horrifying. And so the reality of being able to rest upon, that's not what Paul says in Romans. Romans says there's nothing in all of creation, which would include my will, from separating me from the love of God in Christ. It's not resistible. Saving grace is not resistible. All of his sheep will come. That should be a great comfort to us. I remember hearing it, right? The first time I really heard the doctrines of election, it was offensive because particularly as Americans and Westerners, well, we want the right, we want the choice. What would we choose if God didn't act upon us? What would we choose? Hell, we'd choose, we did in Adam. That's what we were doing. Something has to act upon our will or change our mind or change something for us to be drawn to God. And not just a good argument, not just a winsome argument, but the power of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity giving you life. It's a gift. And then the last thing, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great one. So can you, I mean, imagine Saul seeing the risen Christ what, what could he do? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And God changed him in that, in that moment, right? It wasn't a, you're savable, maybe. He's acting. He's acting to save us. There's so many images in Scripture to show us that God is acting to save us, not just to make salvation possible. Think of Jonah in the belly of the whale, Right? It's God who provided the whale in the first place and God who caused it to be vomited out. In the midst of that, in uh, Jonah 2.9 is when Jonah prays, salvation belongs to the Lord. He was running the opposite way. Here's a great example. God told him to go to Nineveh. He went the exact opposite way. And then it says, God appointed a fish and God appointed a storm. And God appointed an everything. They couldn't be making it more clear. God's the one who's the actor in this. This whale swallows him up. This large fish swallows him up. Three days, he's in the belly. And uh, he's um, in the belly of the fish. And then at some point, he's spat out on the ground and goes to accomplish the mission that God tells him to do. And he does it even begrudgingly. He goes, I don't want to go and tell the Ninevites about you because I don't like them. They're meanies. And they were. They were hateful to the Israelites. He's sending him to preach to his enemies, and he says, I don't want to go preach to them, but I know because I know that you're merciful. I know you're going to save them. <laughs> That's a bad evangelist. <laughs> There's a great example. Um, 
the uh, Ezekiel 36 and 37 at the Valley of the Dry Bones? It's because I know I'm long-winded. Five-minute warning. The, uh, the Valley of the Dry Bones in Ezekiel 36 and 37. They're dry, brittle bones. They're dead. And the Lord sends someone to speak to them and the Spirit comes upon them and they have life. That's what happens to us in salvation. God sends someone, minister, grandma, grandpa, whoever, tells you the good news of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit uses that word and brings you to life and gives you salvation. Let's you know your sins are forgiven. You are justified. You are adopted. You are loved. And there's nothing that can separate you from that. And then the last thing was the uncertainty of perseverance. You could lose your salvation. You'd never know if you're saved or not. This plagued Martin Luther. I know I was saved yesterday. But since I left the confessional, I thought of this and this and this and this. What about those things? He's just plagued by that. I again went to every altar call I can remember as a kid. Because I, I knew I was a sinner. And if I didn't, my mama could remind me. Um, I know that. And I knew that Jesus had died for the forgiveness of my sins. But I didn't know about the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And there's where that confidence comes from. To have the certainty The perseverance of the saints isn't because I'm so faithful that I'm going to follow him. It's that he's so effective, he's going to lead me. So I'm not worried. We don't need to worry about losing our salvation. We don't need to be presumptuous about it or lazy, but we recognize that our salvation from beginning to end is a gift. Jesus Christ died for the forgiveness of our sins, but he also lived a life of perfect righteousness in our stead, and that righteousness is imputed to us. It's credited to our account as if we had done it ourselves. And the good work that he's begun in us will be completed. Can you imagine what would have to happen for you to lose your salvation? It would mean that Jesus Christ's death and resurrection weren't sufficient for you, and then the Holy Spirit who's given to you wasn't able to complete his work. It's like that Drew Admiral, such a knucklehead. I started, but I just couldn't complete it because he's so hard-hearted. I couldn't do it, says the Holy Spirit. He comes back to the Father and says, I failed. It's laughable. It's ridiculous. He who began a good work in you will complete it, right? Right? That's an assurance, not based on how wonderful Drew and I are and we are, but it's based on how amazing our Savior is. How it's amazing how our Savior is that we have everything that we need from him. And so the canons of Dort really unpack these truths. And turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 1. And just listen to all the rich language about everything that God has done for us, right? So this is showing from beginning to end that salvation belongs to the Lord There's nothing for us to contribute to it. We're recipients of it. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, the first 14 verses. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Jesus Christ, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the starting block, right? That's not the reward at the end of the Christian race. That's the gift 
at the beginning for the whole thing, grace and peace. It's not if you do these things, then I'll give you grace and peace. It's grace and peace. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And I would capitalize the S there, meaning from the Holy Spirit, not just spiritual as opposed to material, but spiritual meaning these are from the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Holy Trinity, who has blessed us with every Holy Spirit blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Does it sound like there's anything to add to that? That's just... Thanks to God, right, for the salvation that he has given to us. Go in peace, beloved.